Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Well, here we are again. Ontario is in its third state of emergency because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Nearly half of the province's public health units have posted record numbers of cases since the beginning of April. Case numbers are now topping 4,000 a day. And the province is now saying schools will remain closed beyond this week's school break. We'll get to these and other issues on this Tuesday, April 13th, 2021. So let's get to it. Well, Premier Doug Ford has announced they are moving all schooling to online only after the April break wraps up this week. And JMM, I guess this is another indication of just how quickly this story is moving. It was just last week that the government said they wanted to do everything they could to keep schools open and kids in the classroom. And yesterday's developments suggest... That just wasn't possible. I mean, forget last week, literally 24 hours before the Premier's statement on Monday, uh, Minister of Education Stephen Lecce's office published a letter to parents saying that the government planned to keep schools open. Um, just a, a real remarkable series of reversals for the government over the last uh, 10 days or so. Um, and, you know, the Premier said to reporters on Monday that, you know, the government has had to react quickly to events uh, in real time with uh, fast spreading variants of concern across the province. You know, that said, I think there's a, a fair amount of skepticism, at least certainly uh, from the press corps on Monday. Uh, and you know, from opposition parties about why the premier and his cabinet made this change now and not earlier and why they didn't communicate it to parents earlier. Yeah, that certainly was the gist of all the questioning in the premier's news conference on Monday afternoon. Let me just pick up on a slightly different angle from this, though, because in the past, the province has provided emergency child care for those who can't work from home. Obviously, with all the kids home this week for March break and then for who knows how much longer, they didn't put any date on when they estimate kids will get back to the classroom. Is that going to happen again, that emergency child care? Uh, the government did say that uh, the emergency child care programs that they have operated for uh, frontline workers in, in previous waves of the pandemic is going to be uh, restarted. And uh, it's important, I think, also to say that the the slight wrinkle to this uh, school closure relative to uh, previous school closures is that uh, child care will be allowed to stay open for uh, children who are not school age. So, you know, basically, uh, you know, three and under, I guess you could say fairly. Um, it's just that uh, those daycares will not be allowed to offer uh, before or after school care or uh, all daycare, certainly, uh, for school-aged children. That's uh, not going to be allowed during this um, uh, school closure. Uh, another thing we should say about this announcement uh, that is <laughs> notable for its absence, I guess, is that the, uh, you know, this government loves to give time-limited announcements like the stay-at-home order, for example, is a 28-day stay-at-home order. Um, there is no time frame to this school closure. It is uh, the, the government is saying that uh, they are going to be monitoring uh, various public health indicators. So one could imagine things like uh, case counts and positivity rates in testing and uh, all sorts of indicators that they will be looking at. But they didn't spell out what those indicators will 
be and and what the thresholds will be to reopen schools. Uh, For now, parents are um, very much stuck in the land of uh, stay tuned. Hmm. Let me put something to you, and you... uh I, frankly, I don't know whether this is important or, or it isn't, but it's something of interest, and maybe we should just get it on the record anyway. And that is, when they made their announcement to say that the schools are going to remain closed, both the premier and his minister of education, Stephen Lecce, took p- pains to point out that 99% of the schools and the kids in this province were essentially safe. That, yes, there are outbreaks in schools, but it's only in 1%. And they said, we need to keep the kids out of the schools because they're picking up COVID-19 in the community and then bringing it to the schools, not the other way around. So they're making the point that in spite of everything you've heard, schools in this province are essentially safe. Now, I guess two things. Number one, do we buy that? And number two, is that important? I mean, it's important. And it's worth saying that um, even if you do not share the government's rosy assessment of uh, safety in schools, I think one thing that is uncontroversial is that um, it is best for kids' uh, mental health and their physical health if they can be in school. And so um, I, don't, I don't want to endorse the idea of a noble lie or something, uh, but I, I don't think the government was simply um, wearing rose-tinted glasses uh, on the issue of school safety. Uh, you know, there, there are lots of advisors, not all of whom are paid by the government, uh, who were telling them to keep schools as, as open as they could, as long as they could. Um, the question, do I buy it? I mean... You can look at these numbers any number of ways. Ninety-five uh, percent of Ontarians haven't had COVID yet. Um, I, I haven't felt particularly safe all year, though. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, it's um, I, I, I don't know. I could tell you anecdotally, uh, and obviously, you know, reporters should be careful about anecdotes, and and I wouldn't want this to sound like a, a definitive evidence of anything, uh, but. At my kids' school, uh, a lot of parents started pulling their kids out uh, before last week, uh, before they were forced to buy uh, a Toronto public health order. Um, you know, and we saw this at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Uh, people stopped going to work long before, or sorry, they stopped going to the office to work long before uh, government orders forced them to, right? Uh, people were feeling the, the anxiety about safety in schools uh, well before this. Yeah, and we got an email, I guess, when was it? Yesterday uh, from, I got a daughter who's in grade 12 at a public high school, and uh, we got an email from the school saying, uh, hello, we got a positive test case from a grade 12 kid in, in your high school. So now, of course, they never identify who it is or, you know, whether it's in your half of the grade 12 or the other half of the grade 12 or they don't. But um, but yeah, here we go again, right? Now, should any of this come as a surprise to anybody? <laughs> I mean, there's two sides to that question, right? Uh, for parents, um, I think this could fairly be surprising. As much as I was just saying that, you know, I, I saw that a lot of people were pulling their uh, kids out of school. Uh, if you were listening to the government, then yes, this should be surprising because the government was saying literally just 24 hours before uh, that they were going to keep schools open. Um, for the government, should this be surprising? <sighs> We're not entirely in uncharted territory here. Um, you know, p- people have made the point about the the modeling and what the modeling showed even months ago. But even if you threw all the modeling out the window, you could have just looked at where the case counts have been for the last two weeks. And that should have made, I think, the government a lot more 
circumspect about what it was telling parents. Hmm. Now, as I indicated just a moment ago, uh, the premier is not blaming the school system. He's saying there's just too much community spread happening and students will pick it up in the community and take it into their schools. So perhaps we should just do a word here on community spread itself and where we're at on that. What can you tell us? Uh, well, <laughs> appropriately, I guess, given everything that has come before, uh, the community spread is bad. Um, as of Monday morning, the province reported its second highest level of daily COVID cases ever, uh, and it would have been the highest, except that an even higher number was reported on Sunday. Um, ICUs are so stretched right now that hospitals have started canceling elective procedures, and uh, listeners who have been with us since uh, the start of the pandemic will remember that just because a procedure is uh, quote-unquote elective uh, doesn't mean it's not important. Uh, that category includes uh, many, many things, you know, except for the most urgent and necessary surgeries. Uh, really, I mean, one way to think of where we are right now is that a lot of the stuff that we were worried about in the first wave, including, you know, uh, infections running out of control and ICUs being overloaded, um, some of these things that didn't happen in the first wave or that we managed to keep a lid on in the second wave uh, are really hitting us now. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know if our listeners are the kind of people who have sort of breezed through the pandemic without uh, a, a care in the world, uh, but it is, um, it's is—it's a really scary time right now. I just remember last summer, JMM, we were down to fewer than 200 cases a day for a good stretch of time, and now we're over 4,000 a day. Who would have thought that the middle of last summer we'd be calling those the good old days, even though we were in the middle of a global pandemic? Oh, I know. It is uh, it is so weird that I can't even... I can't even be nostalgic for the pre-pandemic period because I almost don't remember what that's like. I, at this point, I'm just nostalgic for the pandemic, but I could at least go to a patio. <laughs> <laughs> now, we know the United States has seen many times more casualties than we have, not just the total number, but per capita as well. But they have also vaccinated a significantly higher percentage of their population, again, per capita than we have. So let's compare and contrast. Where are we right now in Ontario in terms of getting jabs into arms? In terms of the raw number of vaccines uh, going out last week, there were some very good days. Uh, the province administered more than 100,000 doses per day uh, for four days running, actually. Um, and they just missed that number on the 5th. I think it was about 94, 95,000, that kind of thing. Um, but of course, that's not the whole story. Just getting the, the doses out, getting those numbers up is not the whole story of what we were trying to do. Uh, in the middle of the week, uh, Premier Ford held a press conference where he announced a really a new focus on vaccinating essential workers in the hardest hit postal codes around the province. Uh, those postal codes are largely but not entirely in the GTA. There are also uh, some in uh, the Southwest, uh, some in Ottawa. The prior plan had also included uh, language about uh, vaccinating essential workers, but uh, Everything that the premier has said and everything that's come out of the government in the last few days really has emphasized that uh, this is, is going to be a much uh, bigger focus on essential workers. And we're already starting to see that uh, play out with, you know, uh, in Toronto, for example, public health teams going to uh, apartment buildings in the, the hardest hit postal codes and uh, vaccinating anybody over the age of 18, because, of course, uh, these vaccines are not all approved for people. Uh, uh, well, I, I, at the moment, I, I don't believe we're using any of them under people uh, for people under the age of 18. 
Right. But this does raise uh, a bit of a tricky question here. And this question has come up a lot over the past week. The notion of fairness, because we are now vaccinating, as you've just indicated, in part by postal code. And therefore, there are going to be some younger, maybe less at-risk people that are going to be vaccinated before some older, more at-risk people not in those postal codes will be getting their vaccines. So, I mean, this is the pivot. This is the new way of, of doing things because they want to focus on some of the priority neighborhoods. Having said that, how is the province justifying this move? You know, I think there's an important difference between the word unvaccinated and the word unprotected, right? We we are not protecting the elderly of this province or even of the GTA if we let the pandemic rage out of control in Peel Region and Northwest Toronto. Um, people who uh, have not gotten their shot yet will still be better protected if we manage to bring the uh, spread of this uh, virus down. And vaccines are one way to do that uh, with public health measures. Uh, the province's science table, this uh, committee of scientific advisors to the government, estimate that focusing our efforts on age and postal code instead of just uh, vaccinating by age cohorts uh, could avoid a, a substantial number of hospitalizations and infections and deaths. Uh, ideally, of course, we would have to make that choice. We would have enough vaccines on hand to give everyone in the province their first shot uh, tomorrow and then their second only a few weeks later. Uh, but we don't have that kind of um, vaccine abundance. Uh, everything we are doing right now, including stretching out doses by as much as four months, is about trying to find the best way forward in the context of not having enough vaccines. Uh, the U.S., for example, is in a very different situation than us, and they are making different choices. People are not waiting uh, 16 weeks to get their shots. Well, they're making different choices when it comes to baseball, too, which I keep my <laughs> eye on very carefully. Uh, I just saw, I guess, where was it? Atlanta last night. Atlanta and then Texas before them. 40,000 people at the ballpark uh, to watch a baseball game. Not much physical distancing going on there. They're clearly making different choices than we are. But um, as long as we're on the case of the U.S., is it possible for Canada to get leftover vaccines from the United States? Uh, you know, on Twitter, I guess it was last week, I, I made the comparison to um, Canada once again, finding ourselves uh, in a moment in world history where we're waiting on the Americans to come to our rescue. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's sort of where we are. Right? The, the Americans have banned the export of uh, vaccine doses formally, and uh, they are going to have this enormous amount of vaccine production to you know release into the world once they have finished vaccinating their population but we're not there yet um, that said they have actually still provided us some vaccines and there's more that they they might be able to do in the future uh, you know here in Ontario, we have already administered uh, AstraZeneca vaccine doses that were provided to us uh, by the Americans because um, AstraZeneca supply is, uh, building up is being stockpiled in the U.S., but the American food and drug regulator, the FDA, hasn't approved AstraZeneca for use in that country yet. So I saw a report last week saying that the U.S. is sitting on 20 million doses uh, that they can't use yet. So we might get access to that, but there's a catch, uh, at least in the Canadian context, because AstraZeneca is only recommended for people over 55 uh, in Canada and it's certainly in Ontario. But if you look at the numbers that we've already done, more than half of all Ontarians over the age of 55 have actually been vaccinated by now. So 
we might get access to the AstraZeneca uh, stockpile that the Americans have built up, but we then would need to figure out how many people here can actually use it and whether we want to uh, change some of our uh, decisions about potentially letting younger people uh, make use of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I think everybody can appreciate the fact that Premier Doug Ford is trying to paint as optimistic a picture as he can about all of this. We saw him at his news conferences uh, both yesterday and then again uh, last week, where he's trying to say, we just got to hang in there a little bit longer. The news is going to get better. We're going to get through this. You know, there's a certain amount of that theater that politicians are expected to do in order to try to keep morale up. However, how's it playing? Well, a year ago, 78% of Ontarians thought Ford was doing a good job handling the pandemic. Last November, that number dropped to 55%. Today, that number sits at 32%, a 32% favorability rating, all those numbers courtesy the Angus Reid organization. And that, incidentally, is the second worst number in the entire country, only ahead of Alberta's Jason Kenney, who is at 23% today. So again, 78% a year ago then 55%, and now 32% for Premier Doug Ford. Go ahead, JMN, do the deeper dive, and what else do you come up with? You know, it is, um, it's fascinating how uh, divergent the results are by province. Uh, uh, Premier uh, Francois Legault in Quebec has had just incredibly uh, rock-solid approval uh, in that province. Uh, he was at 66% in November. He's now at 63%. It, it might as well have not moved. Um, the Atlantic premiers, understandably, uh, get really high approval for their job performance in the pandemic. Um, and in BC, where... I think certainly in the first wave, there was a memory of BC being relatively lightly touched by the pandemic, but now they are in a third wave that is, you know, at least as severe as Ontario's. Uh, Premier John Horgan in BC is still polling at 55% approval, uh, you know, more than, well, more than 20 points ahead of uh, Premier Ford. So uh, huge divergences uh, among the provinces. And we don't always get a, a clear picture in these polls of, of why voters are saying, you know, approve versus disapprove or vote for the party versus vote for a different party. In this one, we do get some sense of why voters are down on their premiers, where they are down on them. Uh, and in short, it does seem like a lot of uh, respondents to the Angus Reid poll are just... Um, losing their patience or losing their trust in how the provinces are handling the pandemic. You know, in Ontario, 61% of respondents told Angus Reid that uh, the current public health measures didn't go far enough to contain the pandemic. And that was um, a, a survey that was taken at least partly before the current stay-at-home order was uh, issued. So, you know, for at least in the Ontario context, a lot of voters simply didn't believe that the government was on top of the ball uh, in terms of uh, containing the pandemic. Right. Now, those numbers look pretty grim for Doug Ford, but let's also remind everybody that it was only a week ago that we were discussing the fact that the three most recent party polls on the popularity of the, you know, progressive conservatives, New Democrats, liberals and Greens had the conservatives in first place in all three polls. So, you know, ask the question, how well is Doug Ford managing this pandemic? Not very good results. Who would you vote for if an election were held today? Pretty good results if you're the Tory. So obviously it very much depends on what question you ask. Right. Let's also just, no yeah, sure. Jump in. Uh, I'll just say, you know, 
I think one thing to keep an eye on is um, these uh, questions in the Angus Reid poll, you know, they might not change the fundamental uh, election, the, the ballot question in the next poll or the next several polls, right? What we're what I'll be trying to look for, and it may not simply not be in any of the polls, and you just may not see it at all, is whether any of the support for the second parties shifts, whether we start to see voters get so angry with uh, Doug Ford, for example, that uh, a li- liberal voters start to move to the New Democrats or New Democrats move to the liberal column. Uh, that's one thing that I will be looking for, as I say. You may not see it because polls can be noisy and messy, but, um, you know, if I were a Tory, I would not be betting uh, that much money on uh, the the, um, healthy results they have had in uh, recent polls uh, standing up to, I think, a, a real anger that is out there over the third wave. Yeah, absolutely. And a couple of more points I think need to be made here. Number one, where they are in the polls today, I mean, let's face it, the election's 15 months away, so no one's going to get too excited about this kind of stuff, or at least they shouldn't anyway. And number two is, you may not be happy with the way Doug Ford and his party is leading the show, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you think you have any more confidence in the other guys to do any better. Yes. So, you know, it, it, this all has to percolate its way through over the course of the next year and change, and, and obviously we'll keep a bit of an eye on it. Let's also note that Angus Reid looked at attitudes around vaccines in general, also rather specifically at AstraZeneca. And they found that only 41% of Canadians who are unvaccinated are comfortable with receiving the AstraZeneca vaccine. 23% of those who are uncomfortable say they would reject the AZ vaccine completely. Now, that's interesting because Doug Ford and Christine Elliott, the health minister, have both done photo ops at pharmacies where they got the AZ vaccine. Is there anything else in the gov- that the government you think could be doing to rehabilitate AstraZeneca's reputation here? I mean, you know, I'm not a marketing expert, but the first thing they need to do is actually establish whether they're going to approve it for people under 55 in some way or not. And that, that's a decision that isn't actually in the provincial government's hands. Uh, that's going to be a decision that's made by uh, Health Canada and uh, the, gosh, I always forget their full name, the National Advisory Council on Immunization, I think. NACI. <laughs> NACI, yes. Um, you know, because I think at the moment, you've got this situation where uh, people over 55 are being told that there is this vaccine that is not safe for uh, people under 55 and specifically uh, for uh, the, the, the highest risks uh, are for women between 40 and 55. And if you are over 55, I could see that that information uh, causing you a lot of doubt. Like, how is it possibly safe for me, but not safe for somebody 15 or 20 years my junior, right? Um, I think we're probably going to resolve these questions. And with a bit more information and a bit more data, AstraZeneca is going to get cleared for younger people, at least in most situations. There will be some kind of screening that we start implementing to, to screen out the highest risk people. Um, but, you know, I, I think that where we are in the pandemic right now, a lot of people simply will never trust the AstraZeneca shot as much as they trust the Pfizer or Moderna ones. But I mean, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> well, can I ask you the direct question? Have you been vaccinated yet? Uh, I have not been. I'm not eligible yet. You're not eligible yet because you're, God bless you, you're under 55. Isn't that adorable? <laughs> <I am. laughs> 
<laughs> uh, let me ask you directly: Would would you take the AstraZeneca vaccine if it were offered? I would. Um, you know, this is a, a a big, complicated question for every individual, and I'm I'm not going to pretend to give medical advice to our listeners. It would be grossly irresponsible for me to do that. Um, but we know that the pandemic comes to an end sooner when everyone gets a vaccine as soon as they can. And I think what I can say for myself is that I don't think I'm in a particularly high-risk group for the complications that officials and doctors have been talking about. And if they clear people 40 and over to take the AZ shot, uh, I am in that group and I will go wherever they tell me to to get it. You may not be a medical expert, but I did interview yesterday on the agenda three vaccine experts who told me they don't they actually don't take their cues from John Michael McGrath on how to advise <laughs> the population. But to a person, they all said, yes, there is a risk in taking the AZ vaccine, but that there is a substantially greater risk in going unvaccinated and being inadequately protected from COVID-19 and the variants of concern. So their advice to a person was, when you compare those two risks, and everything we do in life is a risk. You walk out your front door, you're taking a risk. But when you compare those two risks, it makes sense. The math suggests that it is less risky to take AZ and be vaccinated against COVID-19 than hold out for something else and be unprotected, unvaccinated for whatever period of time you plan to wait for. So that was their advice. And unlike John Michael McGrath, they don't just play doctors on podcasts. <laughs> they really are doctors. <laughs> so there you go. Now, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have those for you immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Get on there, figure it out, let us know what you liked and what you didn't, and help make this podcast a little bit better. Here's one from someone who wrote, I wish it was more frequently. <laughs> That's nice to hear. For those of you who have been with us for a year, you'll remember we did switch to a daily format for a few months, uh, but now we are sticking to weekly, so... I'm afraid you'll only have Mr. McGrath and I to kick around for one day a week. <laughs> I suspect that our schedule might get revised when we get closer to the election, but that is something for the uh, the whole team to discuss. And right on. I'm not going to drag people into that in, in the middle of a recording. Um, a reminder, if you want to get in touch, you can also shoot us an email at onpoliticsatvo.org. Here now is my quote of the week, and this goes back to yesterday afternoon's news conference by Premier Ford on the issue of keeping the schools closed after the March break, which is now, of course, called the April break, is over. Here's the Premier. And bringing our kids back to a congregate setting in school after a week off in the community is a risk that I won't take. Because we, need, we know that the more COVID spreads in our communities, the more likely it is to get into the schools. And that would create massive problems for all of us down the road. Doug Ford, who says he'd love nothing more than to have the kids back in the classroom, but not until it's safer to do so. And my quote of the week is from Toronto's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Eileen Davila, uh, who briefed the uh, city's Board of Health on what the next few weeks of the pandemic look like from the Toronto-focused perspective. So obviously, uh, the numbers in this quote don't reflect uh, the entire province, but I think it gives a sense of how things look in, in one of the province's hotspots. Uh, here's Dr. Davila. You can see that even if we are able to decrease transmission by 10%, we can expect to see similar, uh, you know, a high level of a daily number of people in hospital. In fact, uh, commensurate with what we saw at the week of pay wave two, 
which is around 765 daily cases. And we can expect to hit that at about mid-May. So all together, this says that right now, what we can anticipate is that this third wave is likely going to be the worst that we have seen thus far over the course of the pandemic. And that was Eileen Devilla, uh, the City of Toronto's Medical Officer of Health on Monday. And that was episode 107 of the On Poly podcast. It was produced by Katie O'Connor with editing from Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. Stay safe, Steve.